I was, uh, I was just a kid, really. I was a 20-something seminary student. He was the incredibly famous Dr. John R. W. Stott, uh, rector of All Souls Church in London. But when we were introduced at a gathering, Dr. Stott actually showed interest in me. Uh, in fact, he ended up inviting me to share tea and some conversation with him. I was a nobody, but this larger-than-life, very tall man folded up his frame to sit down and converse with me, and I just got to sit there and just absorb his wisdom and his grace. He, he had a lot of brilliant thoughts about leadership and teaching, many of which I still remember. Interestingly, his tone was fascinating, though. He could have spoken to me with the overbearing authority of a best-selling author and a long-serving pastor, but that's not what he did. He just, he just reasoned with me. He just encouraged me. And there's one book in the Bible that has always made me think of that afternoon with John R.W. Stott, and it's the book of Philemon. Today we're going to embark on a brand new study of Philemon, and the tone of this brief letter is incredibly similar to, to having tea with John Stott. Just as Dr. Stott reasoned with me instead of talking down to me, that's what you're going to see the Apostle Paul do. He, he's going to encourage Philemon to do right. Even though he could have commanded him, he's going to encourage him. There's a second similarity between Stott with me and Paul with Philemon. Nothing is too small. Nothing is too small for Christian care. You never know what God might do when you share wisdom with a wet, behind-the-ears kid from Oklahoma or a, or a first-century church leader who lives in a very small town. No person is unworthy of investment. No situation is beyond the prayerful work of development and restoration. All God's people said? Maybe most importantly, Philemon is an incredibly refreshing letter. It's a restorative letter, which, of course, reminds me of that tea with Dr. Stott. Philemon's going to teach a number of important truths about life's rejuvenation. Because think it through, if you're a Christian, that's what you do. You invest in restoration. Restoration is in your blood because that's exactly what God has done for you. It's what you do. Anybody remember the old Geico ads, a series, uh, they were award-winning ads they did about the it's what you do. They were based on natural things and what people do. Just in case you uh, don't remember them, let me share with you two of my favorite of that series of ads. Love this one. Well, the squirrels are back in the attic. Mom? Your dad won't call an exterminator. Can I call you back, Mom? He says it's personal this time. If you're a mom, you call it the worst time. It's what you do. If you want to save 15% or more on car Watch the squirrels in the background. It's the best part. It's what you do. Where are you? It's very loud there. Are you taking a Zumba class? <laughs> now, this one I'd never seen. Somebody sent this to me. Who's responsible for this? If something goes wrong, you find a scapegoat. Rick. It's what you do. <laughs> What'd you say? Uh-oh. Kelly. You want to save 15% <laughs> or more on car insurance, you switch to Geico. It's what you do. Rick, don't walk away from me. <laughs> <laughs> I love Rick. <laughs> if we made... If we made a Geico ad about you, if we made a Geico ad about believers in Jesus, the, the tagline would be restoration. If you're a Christian, it's what you do. This is what you do. Oh, let me show you. Open your Bible, Philemon. Uh, open your Bible to Philemon. You'll find it um, just before Hebrews. Uh, it's kind of hard to find. It's usually only one page. Pull up a chair, pull up a cup of tea, and let's read the first three verses of Philemon. 
Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As we note inside your worship guide, the personnel here are both famous and unknown. You got a bulletin when you came in, right? Open it up. Notes there in the very center on the left-hand side, you'll see the headline, personnel here are famous and unknown. Starts with Paul. Now, Paul is so well-known, we're going to cover him quickly. He is, a, he is an apostle of Messiah Jesus by God's will. Paul started as Saul. Shaul is how he would have said it. He was a brilliant Hebrew. He was trained by the most famous rabbi of his day. But, but, don't just think of him as a Hebrew. He was also a Roman citizen, and he was very well-educated in Greek thought and in Roman law. He used all that learning, all that capacity to persecute the followers of Jesus. But then Jesus appeared to Saul, stunning him on the road to Damascus, and Saul trusted Jesus, a decision that cost him everything, because now he's rejected by the Jewish leadership, and he's, of course, still feared by the Christians. But it was all worth it as Paul commissioned him, as God commissioned him as Paul, apostle to the Gentiles. Now, that means that he had the office of apostle, the last person to hold that office. No one that tells you they're an apostle has that office Okay, it's someone who saw the resurrected Jesus and was commissioned by him to start his churches. In an ironic twist, Paul the Apostle became persecuted for promoting the very truth that he had earlier persecuted. In fact, when he wrote what we just read, when he writes this letter, Paul's in a, um, what we would call a house arrest in Rome, and he's awaiting his trial before Caesar. That's why our text begins, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Think on that for a second, would you? In his unfair and, quite frankly, technically illegal imprisonment, Paul doesn't show any bitterness. I'm fascinated by what he didn't say here. He didn't say, prisoner of that despot, Nero, right? He didn't say, Paul, martyr of the state. He he recognizes that life is all about one's relationship to God, and he's happy to see his imprisonment tied directly to Jesus. So, friends, apply this to you and to me. When unfair things happen to us because we are Christians, and they do, how do we view them? If you view the unfair things that happen to you because you're a Christian with only a human lens, it will always lead to bitterness. But if you'll use a a God-focused lens, it'll allow you to see the roses among the thorns. It'll allow you to have joy because of the amazing blessing of suffering with Jesus. Speaking of joy, look at our next character in the story, Timothy. Timothy is, is Paul's beloved spiritual son. He's with him in Rome as he writes the letter. Paul met Timothy here this town, Lystra, on the second missionary journey. Tim is such an amazing person, we could discuss him all day, but but here's probably the most important thing we could say about him. Timothy brings joy. He brings joy. Um, Look, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4. I, Paul, long to see you, so I may be filled with what, everybody? Joy. You see that? Timothy is a joyful presence. In fact, it's the very first thing we learn about Timothy, even way back in Acts 16, When we first meet him, we find out before he's even received any real instruction in the Scripture, Timothy is a joyful disciple. I see this regularly when I teach young Christians. With some of them, there is an incredible purity of devotion to Christ that just takes my breath away. Whether it's the young adults and the college students I get to teach here at church, or when I travel, when I teach in the Forge that some of you are graduates of, I I get to study with these young believers in Christ. And quite frankly, they don't know much at all. Some of the worst part is they think they know a lot, and they usually don't. They don't know hardly anything. But they are so full of joy. They know, here's what they know. They know they love Jesus, and they are determined to follow him, and they are thrilled to get to study with you, to learn more about Scripture so they can love Jesus even more fully. It is awesome. That's Timothy. Is that true of you? Let me just put it this way. 
somebody's sitting at their laptop and an email bing, pops up and it's from you. Okay, they see the it's from you. What, what reaction does that give them? Are they excited? Are they, are they happy to open that email because you're somebody that always brings joy? What would it take for that to be the case for you, bringing joy to those around you? That same passage in 2 Timothy tells us more. Look at verse 5. I long to see you, so may be filled with what, everyone? Joy. Clearly recalling your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois, then in your mother Eunice, and that I'm convinced is in you also. Um, his family legacy, final point about Tim, his family legacy is lovely, but it's lopsided. Mom and grandma, they were awesome. Rest of the family, eh, not so much. Um, culturally, here's what you have to understand. Anytime you see, and this was true in both Roman and Jewish cultures in the first century, anytime you see a father not mentioned in a passage about a family, that's, that's bad. That is very telling, and it's telling badness, okay? It's a bad sign. Anybody relate to that? Uh, let's do this. Raise your hand if your family heritage contains some really wonderful Christian blessings and some, some weird or sad unscriptural stuff. Mixed bag. If that's your background, raise your hand. Okay, a lot of us relate. Now, there are those wonderful rare families where you have two amazingly godly parents, right? And, and you have this brilliant Christian extended family and you have perfect siblings that you really enjoy. If that is your family, seriously, great, good for you. None of us can relate, but that is awesome. And we think that's a great blessing. Now, of course, there are opposite families. There's ones like the Apostle Paul's family where you are the only one in it to trust Jesus. Some of you are from that background, I know, and, and we are so excited for you to have come into the redeemed community. But most of us are somewhere in the middle. Like Timothy, we learn to appreciate the blessings of our past, and we learn to move past the unhealthy parts. Amen? All right, Philemon is next, main recipient of the letter. Here's what we know about him. From this and other texts, we know that he is not poor. Okay? In fact, he was almost surely wealthy. How do we know that? Because a church met in his house. You see, in the first century, churches met in all kinds of places. Uh, we know from Scripture and from archaeology, some of them rented facilities. Some, very few, but some, even in the first century, were already starting to build their own edifice. Uh, most churches met in public spaces, uh, in, in forum, uh, or in a private home, like this one that's, uh, that's from Colossae. These private homes were owned by very wealthy Roman citizens, and by the way, there were many, many wealthy Roman citizens who became believers in Jesus. Uh, they were disproportionately represented in the church of Jesus, actually. And all around the Mediterranean, we find the same plan. They, they all built the same house. I don't know, it must have been Lenar or someone, but they all built the exact same house all around. And, and the wealthy Roman would have the church. This is a very large house. The church would meet here, and uh, like these tiles are much bigger than a person. They would meet in the atrium, which was partially covered, or the church in, in different weather would gather outside in the garden, okay? Philemon owns this kind of house. He's also Paul's dear friend and co-worker. <laughs> Look at this. This tells us even more. The dear friend title is agapetos. Agapetos is based on the great Greek word for love, agape. Now, agape is self-sacrificing love, okay? It is self-sacrificing. That's what agape means. Christianity is the ultimate expression of agape, and agapetos is someone who is known as a sacrificer of self for others. By the way, agapetos is not used very often by the Apostle Paul. Uh, he, he bestows that title on only a few Christian individuals and just a few uh, churches. Paul used co-worker even less often. It's, it's the Greek term sunergos. Um, sunergos, sunergos. What does that sound like in English? What word does it sound like in English? Synergy, the most overused word in business and education today, right? 
just beaten black and blue synergy, but it's actually a good word, even if it's overused, synergos and our synergy describes uh, parts that work together in harmony, parts that produce something better than they could produce as individuals. It is not a light term to bandy about. Synergos describes something very important to Paul's functionality. Now stop here for a moment and let's let this conviction sink in, folks. Is that how we would be described? Is that how you'd be described? A self-sacrificing teammate that produces harmony. What needs to change for you to be described that way? Think. Ask God to make the changes in you that are necessary for you to be described like Philemon. Amen? Aphia is next. This is a popular name. But, you know, this is funny. It was only popular in one area. It's a very popular name, but only in the old Phrygian kingdom. This is the old area of the Phrygian kingdom, these towns, Hierapolis, Laodicea, Colossae, and um, Aphia is really popular, but only in this area. By the way, Colossae is a dying town. It's a, we would call it a rust belt town. It's getting smaller and smaller. Its backwater trade has passed it by. By contrast, Laodicea and Hierapolis are boom towns. They're, they're Frisco. They're doing very, very well. Um, Aphia is clearly a believer in Jesus. You know how we know? He calls her sister. Never, ever, ever does Paul call someone brother or sister unless that person is a male or female believer in Jesus Christ. Um, <clears throat> and, and she probably is the wife of Philemon because she's mentioned in the same, in the same breath. Archippos is also likely a family member. Now, he gets a really warm and rare description. This is a very rare description. Paul calls him sustratiotes, uh, sustratiotes, what we translate fellow soldier. This is a military term, and it's used for somebody who struggles and fights and, and serves together in the same unit. This is an exceptional compliment from the apostle. Finally, the church is mentioned. Okay, now we're going to see this letter deals with some family issues, but it's apparently not just a personal letter. We know from other sources that, Paul, that, uh, that Philemon and his family lived in the little town of Colossae, but that's all we know. Folks, except for this sentence, there is no lasting fame regarding Philemon, Aphia, Archippos, their little church. No lasting fame. And you know what's funny? I've taught Philemon a couple of times to different groups, and every time you say that, every time you say they, they never receive any real fame, the whole audience, modern audience is all like, oh. They feel sorry for them. They do. It, it, it is sad. You see, modern people feel sorry for them because we are enslaved to a cult of celebrity. And we think, deep down, we think the most important thing in life is fame. But we've got it all wrong. For just a second, stop checking the number of likes on your selfie you took this morning walking in and, and, and look at this. This is a far better way to be known than anything, anything your world offers. Agapetos, sunegos, sister, sustratiotes, that is the best possible way to ever be known. That's better than any red carpet earth has to offer. Amen? Now, on the right side of our notes, we consider the way Paul addresses them. Let's go through the way he addresses them. The greeting is classically Christian. This is so cool. Look here. Okay. Typical letters of the classical era begin with this greeting. They begin with Kyrain. Okay? Kyrain is, hi, greetings, how are you? You know, that, that's Kyrain. Okay, that was a typical letter. But Peter and Paul, the apostles, put an amazing twist on this. This is absolute genius. They never said Kyrain. They say charis. Same root word, but a totally different meaning. Charis means grace. It means the unfair, unmerited favor of God. And then, and then the apostles add this great Hebraic uh, line. They use a Greek version of the Hebrew shalom, uh, which is peace. 
So they say grace and peace instead of kairin. Grace and peace becomes the great Christian greeting, and it has a much deeper meaning than hello. It's infused with experience, experience of God's unmerited grace of his amazing peace. That peace is so incredible, it comes from the Father and Son. Do you see that? Look, Jesus has gained God's favor for everybody who trusts him. He's made peace with God possible, so even a jerk like me can call God our Father? How amazing is that? That is an awesome greeting, and it is very different from the perfunctory kyrene that one usually receives. As a college kid, I was walking on the campus one day when I saw one of my favorite teachers, Mrs. Miller. Ann Miller and I went to the same church. She was a whip-smart literature professor, and I walked by Ann Miller and I said, how are you? And she saw right through my perfunctory greeting. She looked right into my soul, and she stopped and looked at me, and she said, fine. That's what you want to hear, isn't it? Fine. And she walked on. And I, I froze. I stopped as she walked by, and I turned around, and I said, Dr. Miller, can I take you to the student union and buy you a malt and sit down and hear how you really are today? And she stopped, and she turned around and said, well, Mr. Broderick, that's better. Yes, you may. <laughs> and we went to the student union. I can't remember what we talked about. She was so popular, we had soon had a crowd of students around us laughing and chatting. But I will never, ever, ever forget the epiphany of that moment underneath the big oak tree in front of Old Main. I learned that I had culturally settled for Chirene when I could be offering grace and peace. I could be saying, how are you, in a way that means it, where there is grace and peace in the question. What is your greeting with other Christians? How do you, how do you approach our brethren? Are you chayrein, how are you? Or do you offer charis and shalom, grace and peace to you? Before you answer, think about it like this. How do you address the most difficult of our brethren? The weirdos, the, uh, the you know, other people. Um, the problem children, the outcasts, the triune God. The triune God offers every one of them grace and peace. Do we? Now, to set up the next few Bible studies, I need to say a word about the structure of this book, okay? The structure is powerfully Latin. Um, This is more than merely a first century letter. This is actually crafted according to the rules of Latin rhetoric. Here's what you need to understand. In the Greco-Roman world, rhetoric was central to education. Words were considered the ultimate power, which is fascinating because there was never a people more warlike than the Romans, and yet they felt words were the ultimate power. And since the Romans loved law, they excelled at legal reasoning and rhetoric. Now, in a short speech, a Roman lawyer was trained to use three tools, okay? Longer speech, they would use more, but in a short speech, a Roman lawyer used three tools. These are important. The first is the exordium, which is just a fun word to say. So on the count of three, you get to say exordium. One, two, three. Very good. It usually included a thanksgiving, oh, I'm so grateful to write you, and then an argument, or I'm so grateful to speak in front of you, and then an argument. The proof developed the argument, okay? Now, it could use a number of parts, but there always had to be these two. Always had to have an, an ethical argument, ethos, and a, uh, a feeling argument, pathos, okay? So you had to have those two in your proof. And then there was the per oration. The per oration is a closing summary. Usually had four parts. There's a request, 
So in the end, this is what I would like. Uh, a big summary logical argument, an emotional appeal, and then, and then one that seems weird to us. There was always a personal connection with whoever you were writing to, whoever the judge was you were arguing in front of. That would seem strange to us, but it was very much a part of Roman law, so you would instead, you would look up and say, and to close, Judge Cooper, looking forward to going fishing with you next week. That, that's, that's what that means, okay? All right, now, this letter is written by the Apostle Paul, who is a really talented Roman thinker, and he followed this to a T. The only reason I'm taking you through this is I don't think one can really grasp the meaning in Philemon if you don't get this. So look at how Philemon's structure unfolds. When you read Philemon later tonight on your own, you'll see that his exordium is very clear. It's verses 4 through 7. That's the exordium. His proof is 8 through 16. And by the way, he has both parts that he needs to have. He has his ethical argument and his feeling argument. His ethos is a utility and honesty. So what, what works and what's true, that's his ethic. And then he argues from, from feeling, from personal affection, we're friends, from, that's his pathos argument. Okay, got it? This is a Roman letter written by a master craftsman. Folks, Philemon and his church would have read it this way, and so must we. All right, so let's go through it again. His exordium is 4 through 7. His proof is in 8 through 16. He appeals to utility and honesty as his ethos, to affection as his pathos, and then his peroration is perfect as all four. I'm telling you, this guy, he may be better than Kikoro as a legal arguer. He's really brilliant. Uh, the request is verse 17. His amplified argument is 18 and 19. And then the emotional appeal is verse 20. And then his personal connection is the very end, verses 21 through 22. The slides are always available on FriscoBible.com, um, and we'll go through this later in the series. I'll, I'll show you how, more about how this impacts our understanding of each part. For now, let's talk about the issue behind the letter. The issue is about serious business. It's about the business of Roman slavery. Here's what's happening. Paul is sending Philemon's slave, a guy named Onesimus, back to Philemon in Colossae. Apparently, Onesimus had run away, and then he became a Christian through the Apostle Paul's work in Rome. Now he's a brother to his legal master. Go down to verses 15 and 16. Go to verses 15 and 16. Um, for perhaps this is why he, Onesimus, was separated from you, Philemon, for a brief time. So you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He's especially so to me, but even more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. The key word here is the Greek word doulos. Dulos describes Onesimus. It's what we translate slave or bondservant. This is, please listen carefully, this is very easily misunderstood without the historical context. You see, Roman-era slavery is very different from the modern racial kind, very different. Um, our old pal Doug Greenwald, he explains uh, how the Roman slavery background behind that word doulos. Uh, he says, when Rome conquered your part of the world, you became a Roman subject without rights. Okay, very difficult situation. Thus, if you were a bookkeeper, a physician, a teacher in a conquered territory, like Phrygia, the area we just looked at, then you knew that becoming a Roman slave was the only pathway for you to eventually buy your freedom and become a freedman with the all-important Roman citizen rights. Thus, it is not surprising that many professionals in conquered lands willingly sold themselves into Roman slavery as the only pathway to Roman citizenship and freedom, close quote. A doulos is a slave who willingly bonds himself or herself to a master. Thus, in running away, Onesimus is breaking a contract. That's how we would think of it today. By the way, spoiler alert, in this letter, Paul is going to ask Philemon to set him free. Forget you heard that. We'll come back to it. All right. And by the way, that ask is very bold. He's asking for freedom of a contract breaker. 
This, this is powerfully counterculture. For a first century person, this requires a complete change of heart. Of course, not for us. We, we read this and we smugly sit back and we think, well, thank goodness we're not like that. <laughs> we, we would never make poor Onesimus return to slavery. <laughs> yeah. Don't be so sure. Please remember the context of Roman business. Let's translate this into our lives today. Okay, think of it like this. You own a business and an employee of yours uh, joins a union. He signs a union contract. Uh, nothing you can do. Uh, you're not excited about it, but he does it. This contract imposes very severe penalties on you if you ever miss a payment. It also puts major penalties on him if he leaves before the contract is up. Okay. You faithfully meet your part every month, but suddenly one day the guy's just gone. He leaves a note saying, I, I took another job. Uh, I'm not leaving the payment that I owe you, and so long, suckers. That's, that's what he says, right? And then, sometime later, you receive a letter from your old business mentor, the person who, who taught you everything you know, set you up in your field, and he asks you to take that guy back. Turns out your old employee has gone and actually gotten himself mentored by your old mentor, and the mentor gives you a personal guarantee that everything is now well. In that scenario, what would you do? Don't be glib. Think about this. Think about the impact on your other employees, union and non-union, if you just take this guy back. Think about the rule of law. Think about your mentor, your hero, and, and how much he means to you. Think about how often you have received mercy. This is serious business indeed. Now, as big as the business impact is, the situation is amazingly small. Colossae is a really small town, but it receives two letters from God's apostle, two letters, absolute word of God. Onesimus is just one little slave, but he matters to God. Philemon hosts one tiny little church in his home, but God sends two of the most significant letters ever penned to that church. One of the really important lessons out of Philemon 1 through 3 is that our view of what matters needs recalibration. With that in mind, I'd like to invite up my friend, Andrew Worley. Uh, Andrew, I've lost you. Where are you? You in here? Good. Come on up. Get up here. Uh, Andrew is the pastor of uh, Anchorway Church in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, and, uh, and his latest book is I Love Jesus But Not His Girlfriend. Um, by the way, I had a six-year-old come up to me after the first service and say, I didn't know Jesus had a girlfriend, so I had to explain that's the church. Uh, please give Andrew a hand. We're so glad he's here. Thanks. Now, let me tell you a quick background so you can learn from Andrew. Um, Andrew left a very large congregation in Houston and he went to a tiny little church in Steamboat uh, where when you're on vacation, you're gonna go and leave lots of money. Lots. Um, and uh, Andrew left this. So Andrew, think about that time period when you were making the decision to leave the big church and go to a small place. Um, did anybody tell you you were crazy? I, I told myself I was crazy. <laughs> okay, good. My wife told me I was crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there, there was all the fears, you know, we're moving from Houston where we went to the beach every month. Yeah. And now we're going to a place where it snows about 25 feet a year. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Ski Town, USA. Yeah. yeah. Right. Where it is 85 degrees today, by the way. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, it's a, it was, that was, and then what was I doing to my career? Yeah. With all those pastoral uh -huh. questions. It is a career in some ways. And here I've kind of reached the top and now I'm going to go back to the bottom and, yeah. you know, even lower. I've never been to a church that small. And then, uh, yeah. and then you know, the... The craziest one that I heard, though, was, um, you know, it was a very large church, and there was some pressure coming from the outside or from within, 
And I, so I had a layperson come to me once, and we went to lunch, and he said, I got about 200 people ready to walk on this church and follow you as a, the pastor of the new church that we're going to start in Houston. And, and uh, I remember coming home from that lunch and telling my wife, we have a chance to stay in Houston. We don't have to go to the tundra. And, uh, and she said, that's not your legacy. Yeah. You're not going to leave like that. Well said, like, Angie. Absolutely, I'm not. And so we went ahead and took the lead. Yeah, amen. Okay, so think about the smaller context. T- tell us, are there any particular lessons that you have learned from God or about God in, in the smaller context? What have you learned? The smaller context did two things for me. The first was, and I'm just now realizing this, hmm. you know, it's taken years to get there because I was a real mess, that my identity was wrapped up in being a big church pastor. Yeah. Uh, I enjoyed the attention. I enjoyed the paycheck. I enjoyed the influence I, I had. I enjoyed all that. And that I lost friends. I lost influence. People don't even care what I tweet anymore. <laughs> you, know, as, you know, I've lost so much. I, I do. I like uh, your tweets you. all the time. Yeah, you I like it. I do. Yeah. Um, so I, I lost so much. And I learned that my identity was not in the big church. My identity is in Christ and Christ alone. Amen. And pastoring is what I do. And yeah. so... But I wouldn't have found that had I not gone to the smaller yeah. context. And, yeah. and the other thing I learned was um, one day, and I'll be brief, one day I was, um, I had been there about nine months. We just bought this house, and it was snowing. We got about a foot and a half of snow on a Sunday. And he, his house, when he moves there, the house is, the only house they can find is it, beautiful. It's up on the side of a, of a butte, actually, and, and, uh, and, and the house is, he, it's a cabin, it's heated by firewood only. Yeah. Okay, in Steamboat, Colorado. Okay, so that gives you a feel. All right. So. We bought it for $600,000. <laughs> Heated by wood. Yeah. <laughs> we have this, this driveway of death that leads down the mountain. And so to get out of the driveway, you need four-wheel drive, and you got to snowblow. So we got a foot and a half of snow that morning. And so it's Sunday morning, and I'm snowblowing. And I'm used to uh, big church, two services, and very orchestrated. Everything's about me. I showed up early. My coffee's ready. My assistants are there. My, you know, on one Sunday, I'd, reach, I'd go shake everybody's hand on this side. On one Sunday, I'd go shake everybody's hand on this side. On one Sunday, you know, on alternate services, I'd come in five minutes before. I mean, everything was about me and orchestrated, and here I am, snow blowing. <laughs> and I'm like, 80 people are showing up to church today because nobody's going to get out of their driveway, and they're just going to stay in their house and drink their coffee and read their Bible, and how nice. And I'm doing this, and I'm thinking, I'm, this is horrible. I'm too good for this. And then I hear God say, oh, really? <laughs> and I say, aren't I? <laughs> and, uh, and it's one of those Jonah moments, you know, at the end yeah. of Jonah when, the, when the, he says the same thing. I'm too good to talk to these people. Yeah. And, um, and God says to me, um, why don't they deserve, why don't these people deserve a teacher like you? If you weren't here, who else would do it? And why don't these people deserve a leader like you? If you weren't here, who else would do it? So why do you think you're too good for this? Mm-hmm. And I just rested in that and blew the snow and, and went off to church. And had a great morning. And had a great morning. But again, it was just kind of one of those just stripping back all the identity stuff. And, yeah. and God kind of revealing to me, he cares about the small things. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so, so let's flip that. Uh, so anchor, you're really you're really gifted, and you're a great teacher and a and a very good leader. Anchorway is already growing; only been there a year and a half, and the place has already doubled in size. You're at two services. Let's suppose, just for grants, let's suppose it becomes a great big church. Is that bad? <laughs> I get a, I get heart palpitations <laughs> just thinking about that. Uh, yeah. No, I. 
And again, I share this, but the, the, the realistically, it probably won't ever happen. Sure. Right? Steamboat is 90% unreached, so 10% of the population goes to church. That's 1,200 people. Most of the churches in Steamboat are very liberal. They, they hang out Buddhist flags and they're Unitarian based. So from those 1,200 people who say they go to a church, only about 600 go to a Bible teaching church. Mm-hmm. And so we, we hold, I guess, the greatest pocket of that. And so um, if we were to ever grow past that, one, it had to be an am- amazing work of God to free people from Buddhism and yeah. idolism and all, all kinds of stuff they're dealing with. Um, but if it, if it were to happen, it, it would have to be such a, a neat work. You'd have to sit back and go, thank you, Lord, for doing this. Amen. And at the same time, um, I think because of all the smallness and all the things I've gone through as far as just with, you know, intentionally going small, um, I, I would know how to deal with it. Yeah. It wouldn't be about me and it wouldn't be about, you know, my fame and my identity wouldn't be wrapped up in it. It'd just be a work of God that I'm just kind of grabbing onto. That's excellent. Let me, let me share with you a poem. Um, I, when I read this poem by Josh Wilson, it makes me think of, of Andrew. It's titled Dream Small. Uh, it's a mama singing songs about the Lord. It's a daddy spending family time the world said he cannot afford. These simple moments change the world. It's a pastor at a tiny little church, 40 years of loving on the broken and the hurt. These simple moments change the world. Dream small. Don't bother like you've got to do it all. Just let Jesus use you where you are one day at a time. Live well. Loving God and others as yourself. Finding little ways where only you can help, like blowing snow. I added that part. Uh, With his great love, a tiny rock can make a giant fall. Dream small. It's visiting the widow down the street or dancing on a Friday with your friend with special needs. These simple moments change the world. Of course, there's nothing wrong with bigger dreams. Just don't miss the minutes on your way, no. Because these simple moments change the world. The magnitude we can see is not what matters. It is the ministry of reconciliation that matters. Please give Andrew a hand. Thank you so much, partner. And that ministry of reconciliation is what our letter is all about. Take a look. Here's our theme for this study. Uh, What Philemon is all about. God is the Lord of restoration. As his people, Christians are agents of reconciliation. It's part of how we use our powers for good. Or in the common parlance, it's what we do. Paul, Philemon, and Onesimus all taste of refreshment, of doing good in this wonderful letter. Further, and this really matters to you today, this epistle calls for more commitment to reconciliation, which is a strong motivation to modern people who live in a season of cultural division. Of course, you hear all that, and I know, I know you. I know what you're thinking in that uh, Jason Statham voice that you like to use in your head. You're saying, oi, what does it have to do with me, Right? your weapon, and your badge. Good question. I'm glad you asked. Thank you so much. Look at our series premise. This is why. Why are we studying Philemon? We need restoration. It's a continual reality on the hot, hard, dead pan of this broken and backbreaking world. Thankfully, God has empowered his people to be agents of refreshment, sharing the blessings of living water, grace, and peace with all in need. God expects his people to shower grace and peace on every situation, no matter how small or how big. I want to read to you a wonderful example. Okay, story time. Story time. Oh, boy. This is written by Bob Green. Bob is a very talented writer, one of my favorites, and uh, this was just published last week. Uh, it's called A Soldier Never Forgets North Platte. Uh, how many of you are from Nebraska? You will love this. Yes? Okay, just for you. All right. We were overwhelmed, said Lieutenant Colonel Nick Jaskulski. I don't really have words to describe how surprised and moved we all were. I had never even heard of the town before. Colonel Jaskolski, a veteran of the Iraq War, is commander of the 142nd Field Artillery Brigade of the Arkansas Army National Guard. 
For three weeks earlier this summer, the 142nd had been conducting an emergency deployment readiness exercise in Wyoming, training and sleeping outdoors, subsisting on field rations. Now it was time for the 700 soldiers to return to their base. A charter bus company had been hired for the 18-hour drive back to Arkansas. The Army had budgeted for a stop to get snacks. The bus company determined the soldiers would reach North Platte in western Nebraska about the time they would likely be hungry. The company placed a call to the Visitors Bureau. Was there anywhere in this town that can handle a succession of 21 full buses and get 700 soldiers in and out for a quick snack? North Platte said yes. North Platte has always said yes. During World War II, North Platte was a geographically isolated town of 12,000. It's about double that now. Soldiers, sailors, and aviators on their way to fight in the war rode troop trains across the nation, bound for Europe via the East Coast or the Pacific via the West Coast. The Union Pacific Railroad trains that transported those soldiers always made 10-minute stops in North Platte to take on water. The townspeople made those 10 minutes count. Starting in December 1941, they met every train, up to 23 a day, beginning at 5 a.m. and ending after midnight. Those volunteers greeted between 3,000 and 5,000 soldiers a day. They presented them with sandwiches and gifts, played music for them, danced with them, baked birthday cakes for them. Every day of the year, every year of the war, they were there at the depot. They never missed a train. They never missed a soldier. They fed. It's a town of 12,000 people, many of whom were off fighting in a war. They fed 6 million soldiers by the end of the war. Not one cent of government money was asked for or spent save a $5 bill sent by President Franklin D. Roosevelt. The soldiers never forgot the kindness. Most of them and most of the townspeople who greeted them are now dead. And now in 2018, those 21 busloads from the 142nd Field Artillery were on their way expecting to stop at some fast food joint. We couldn't believe what we saw when we pulled up, Colonel Jaskolsky said. As each bus arrived over a two-day period, the soldiers stepped out to be greeted by lines of cheering people holding signs of thanks. They weren't at a fast food restaurant. They were at North Platte's event center, which had been opened up and decorated especially for them. People just started calling our office when they heard the soldiers were on their way, said Lisa Burke, director of the Visitors Bureau. Hundreds of people who wanted to help. The soldiers entered the event center to the aroma of steaks grilling and the sound of recorded music, current songs by Luke Bryan, Justin Timberlake, Florida Georgia Line, World War II songs by Glenn Miller, Jimmy Dorsey, the Andrews sister. They were served steak sandwiches, ham sandwiches, turkey sandwiches, deviled eggs, salads, fruit. Local church groups baked pies and brownies and cookies. Mayor Dwight Livingston stood at the door for two days and shook every soldier's hand. Mr. Livingston served in the Air Force in Vietnam, and he came home to no words of thanks. Now, he said, as he shook hands and welcomed these soldiers, I don't know whether those moments were more important for them or for me. I just knew I had to be there. It was one soldier's 21st birthday, Lisa Burke said. When I gave him his cake, he told me it was the first birthday cake he'd ever had in his life. Not wanting to pry, she didn't ask him how that could possibly be. I was able to hold my emotions together, she said, until later. When it came time to settle up, the Army, after all, had money budgeted for his snacks. The 142nd Field Artillery was told, nope, you're not spending a penny here. This is on us. This is on North Platte. Ladies and gentlemen, by God's grace, you and I can, we must, be like North Platte. To that end, let me offer four specific applications. Four specific applications from Philemon 1 through 3. Number one, stop hiding behind your wounds. We must stop hiding behind our wounds as an excuse for separation. Reach out this week to a brother or sister of yours who has wounded you or whom you have wounded. Don't stir anything up. Just show that you were about reconciliation. I don't know about you, but the most powerful cards I've ever gotten just said, I'm sorry. Or, or I forgive you, 
or I'm glad we're related in Jesus, reach out. Number two, use your powers to bring people together. Introduce them to each other. Look for connections. For example, let me show you a letter I recently received from a lady in this church. She said, Pastor Wayne, I met a very nice lady who sits behind me at church. I'm so glad she invited me to their group. This very shy woman said, I think I'll go. I was especially touched that she reached out to ask me. Well done, both of you. Now, there are always remember this. There are hundreds of applications to which the Holy Spirit will guide us in any text. Do not be limited. These four are just to get us started. Stop hiding behind wounds as an excuse to avoid reconciliation. Use your powers to bring people together. Number three, don't fixate on big versus small opportunities as you use your powers for good. Just, just use the opportunity. This is why I leave you guys and go teach at camps and conferences that are much smaller than the number of people I would teach here. Some of them are even tiny, but every one of them matters. Above all else, number four, ground your work in Jesus. He's the true reconciler, right? Jesus is the ultimate giver of grace and peace. He is the reconciler who bridges the gap between God and man. Do everything by his power. Pray with me. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray for anyone who is studying with me, wherever they may be, that has never trusted in Jesus as Savior. They don't they don't have grace and peace because they haven't received it. Listen, friend, I know you're just one little small person, but you matter to God. He loves you, and he longs to be reconciled with you. So much so, he sent his only son, Jesus, who died on the cross and rose from the dead, so that if you trust him, you have everlasting life. Trust him right now. If you just chose to believe on Jesus, raise your hand. I want to rejoice with you. Just you and me. Everybody else is praying. Good. Father, I ask you to bless these Christians, new and old, and encourage us in the grace and peace of Jesus. Amen.